Welcome to this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm Katie Mulligan, Editor-in-Chief of ACG's magazine, Middle Market Growth. Today we're rerunning one of our most popular episodes featuring Chris Voss, the FBI's former lead international hostage negotiator. Chris talks about the behavioral components that influence any negotiation, whether you're sitting across the table from a terrorist group or a business owner. He has great anecdotes from his time in the FBI, plus practical tips like how to frame bad news or how to get out of a deal that's going nowhere. Ever since I spoke with Chris, I continue to think about this interview every time I hear or say, you're right, and you'll hear him explain why that line is a total con. After his time in the FBI, Chris went on to become CEO of the Black Swan Group, which advises Fortune 500 companies on performing complex negotiations. I was able to get him on the podcast thanks to the team at ACG Philadelphia, who had Chris speak at their M&A East conference back in 2018. That event always has great content, so mark your calendar for October 26th through the 28th to attend M&A East in 2020. After you listen to Chris, let me know which of his insights resonates most with you or whether you used any of his strategies in your own negotiations. You can reach me at editor at acg.org. Here is Chris Voss. Chris, thanks for joining me. Katie, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So you have decades of experience in international crisis and and high-stakes negotiations, and I think it's safe to say that most wouldn't associate middle market mergers and acquisitions with high-profile kidnappings, but clearly they both involve negotiations. So what are some of the key elements that all types of negotiations share, whether they involve terrorism or a business deal? Yeah, well, one way or the other, you're dealing with human beings, and it's going to sound like an oversimplification, uh, but it's not. Uh, regardless of the circumstances that we're in, we're all going to worldwide the same, we're all going to react the same. And to get into some technical terms, there's a structure in our brain called the limbic system, and it, no matter what, it operates by the same rules. People are driven by fear of loss, primarily. Danny Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in Behavioral Economics uh, for Prospect Theory, which basically says, you know, a loss thinks twice as much as an equivalent gain. It doesn't matter if you're a terrorist holding hostages or if you're uh, the owner of a company who's trying to sell. Uh, you're driven by the same stuff. Sure. And what are some of the strategies then that can set up a negotiation for success from the start? Well, uh, interestingly enough, we make our decisions first. We gotta, we gotta reconcile the reasons for not doing something in order to get us to do something. You know, second thoughts are because second thoughts on deals, people backing out of deals, people backing out of agreements that they've made are a result of the negatives not being reconciled. And it kind of gets us back into this prospect theory stuff that uh, Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky came up with which is fear of loss and negatives have double the impact on our thinking. So what does this have to do with negotiations? We do it the opposite way we should be doing it. Most negotiations are pitching gain as opposed to resolving problems. As soon as you start taking a different approach to resolving problems, they say that 70% of buy decisions are made to avoid a loss as opposed to accomplish a gain. This is a human nature aspect kicking into gear. Start on 
resolving the reasons why people won't do something. What about a deal doesn't work? And you're left with what about the deal does work, and it's pretty easy to implement. And how do personalities factor into a negotiation? Are there some deals that are just doomed to fail based on the, the people who are involved? There, you know, there can be. Uh, it depends. Again, it depends. That's a classic negotiator's answer, right? I mean, context. We believe that no deal is better than a bad deal. Uh, you know, and if you negotiate a bad deal, it's gonna it's it's gonna turn into blood money. Implementation is gonna suck you and your company time. Trying to fix a bad deal is ten times worse than starting over on another deal. Huh. So, uh, if if I got a counterpart that's determined to bury terms into a deal that are going to hurt me, I'm just not going to do that deal. Um, vague terms, uh, impossible performance terms. Vague terms are the real, uh, are the biggest problem because we, and we got killed in a deal once and took us three years to collect the money because they said uh, we needed to deliver our, our trainings in a satisfactory basis and they never find satisfactory. That's seemed innocuous enough and as it turned out they decided after the fact when they didn't want to pay us that they would just say everything was unsatisfactory and for the longest time it took us you know there were a lot of lawyers that we went to that said well you never define satisfactory i know this is ridiculous but there's nothing you can do about it uh so what am i driving at if, I, if i'm if we're dealing with somebody now that wants to put vague terms in the contract either those vague terms come out or we just don't do the deal so it sounds like trust plays a big role, too, of being able to trust the person who's across the table from you. Well, that's an oversimplification. Uh, everybody's looking for trust, and I don't mean, and I'm sure that sounded insulting the way that I answered that, but the best way to navigate trust is to remove the word trust from your vocabulary and substitute in the word predictability. Hmm. The word predictability. Okay. And as soon as you drop predictability in a place of trust, then it opens up your eyes. For example, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. If someone's always been a pain in the neck for me to deal with, they're always going to be a pain in the neck <laughs> to deal with. The best indicator of past behavior is future behavior. I can trust them to be a pain in the neck instead of trusting them to look out for my interests. Now I can make the decision as to whether or not I want to do the deal with them. By and large, uh, we avoid pains in the neck. Would you say that some people are are natural negotiators, they just get it, or is this something that you have to learn? You know, there's a great book called The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle that kind of addresses, you know, born anything, born negotiator, born piano player, born anything. And I, and I agree with Coyle's assessment that pretty much everything is learned and that what the 10,000-hour rule, so to speak, someone that looked like a child prodigy, in fact, they just got interested in something before anybody really realized they were interested and started putting the 10,000 hours in. So the minute you get interested in negotiation, if you find it interesting, if it's fun for you, if you find that you enjoy the process, in a very short period of time, people are going to say to you, Wow, you're a natural-born negotiator. When in fact, you just got interested in the process and it became fun for you to learn. Would you say that technology and new ways of 
communicating have changed the landscape for business negotiation. I'm just thinking, you know, so much is handled over email or conference calls or text even, and not necessarily in person anymore. Is that making it harder to to negotiate with someone? Well, they, you know, these are tools. And tools, a given tool either makes it harder or easier depending upon how you want to rely on it. Like if you only want to negotiate via email, then you're going to have a horrible time. It's really going to be hard. But if you look at it as another way to advance your negotiation strategy and, and use it as a tool within your arsenal between email, text, telephone conversation, in-person interaction, understanding the limitations and the advantages of each, then it's going to enhance your negotiation. But if you think you can get away with negotiating only via email, you're one of those people that hate email because it's just not going to work. And I understand that you differentiate between two phrases that often come out of a negotiation, the first being, that's right, and the other being, you're right. Both of those on their face seem pretty positive, but curious how they differ. Yeah, that's a great question, and that is the massive difference between whether or not you're going to make a deal and whether or not you're spinning your wheels. Now, you're right as a response is what we get from people when we're making our case. We're putting forth our argument. We're making our argument. And if you equate negotiation to argument, then you're nowhere near as good as you could be. Hmm. But when you're making your argument and the other side is just tired of you and they want to maintain the relationship either because they like you or because they have to, but they really want you to shut up. There are magic two words for them to utter to get you to shut up every single time. And they look you in the eye and you say, they say, you're right. And that is incredibly satisfying to hear somebody look at us and tell us, you're right. And we're so satisfied we shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and the funny thing about the you're right phrase is everybody I know falls for this when they're told they're right. And subsequently, we'll turn around a half an hour later and use your right to get somebody to shut up and never imagine it's being done to them, (laughs) (laughs) which is, you know, an insane idea. But one of the things that's really true of a lot of communication, depending upon which side of it you're on, you're using it and viewing it vastly differently. Now, let's contrast that with that's right. That's right is what we say when we completely agree with what we've just heard. It's the actual implementation of the Stephen Covey advice from way back when, see first, understand, then be understood. But, you know, the, the, the black swan advice is seek first to show understanding in order to be understood. And it's not saying to the other side, I understand. It's articulating their position so effectively that they look at you and they say, that's right. And at that moment in time, your opportunity, the the gates, the doors have been opened for you now to be understood, for you to to, uh, exert your own influence. And what about if you have bad news to share during a negotiation? Should you lead with the good stuff or the bad, and what should you say for the end? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And there's a subtle nuance here. Right, so we do not believe in a sandwich rule. You know, the sandwich 
is <laughs> positive, negative, positive. That's a distortion. Hmm. I lead with positive, and most people are really worried about the, oh, by the way, I send you an email, I make a phone call, and say, hey, I love doing business with you, with you. You're a wonderful person. How are the kids? How's the wife? You know, did you go to the ball game? Did you watch Monday Night Football? Oh, by the way, I get bad news. And then they end. And that has become such a bad habit that at least the sandwich rule gets us out of ending on a negative. But even better is if you've got bad news, I'm going to open up my email or my phone call. I'm going to say right off the bat, I've got bad news. I don't want you to get blindsided. I don't want you to be worried about the old, by the way. I'm going to warn you that negativity is coming. And then very quickly, I'm going to follow it up with the bad news. You're going to be relieved. You're going to appreciate the fact that I warned you. Uh, you appreciate the fact that I gave you a chance to brace yourself. And then you appreciate the fact that I delivered the bad news. Now, if I've got something positive to say, I'm going to put it at the end. Because that's the last impression is the last impression. So I'm going to say, I got bad news. The deal's not just, the deal isn't going to work as proposed. We want to do business with you. We have tremendous regard for you. We see a long-term relationship in the future, and we'd love to be able to fix that. That's the way you deliver bad news, with the warning, the bad news, and a positive idea. And what are some red flags that, that someone should pull out of a negotiation? What do you look for where you just know this is not going to be salvageable, it's time to get out? Well, um, you know, uh, the first thing is, really, you got to diagnose whether or not you're in an actual negotiation or not. Uh, they might be pumping you for information. That's really huh. common. There's a saying among salespeople that it's not a sin to not get the deal. It's a sin to take a long time to not get the deal. So chasing deals that were never there where we were the fool in the game, that's really the first big thing that you need to deal with. We're doing a lot of the Black Swan Group is uh, the negotiation consultant for Hyperloop transportation system. And that's the Hyperloop that's going to change the world. And, and, and advising them recently in their investor meeting, you know, we refer to this as the favorite of the fool or proof of life. What's the proof of life of the deal? Because everybody that comes in to talk to them about potentially investing in Hyperloop, and it's going to remake the world. I mean, it's a phenomenal, it's a phenomenal concept. And the guys with Hyperloop transportation, transportation systems They've got it nailed. They found out now that 90% of the people that are, that are coming in and that are supposed investors are just there as tourists. Huh. You know, they, they're not going to invest. They really came in to confirm that they were making the right decision to not invest. And the people that are now involved in those meetings say, you are saving us so much time because now I don't got to spend uh, an hour and a half doing my, a sales pitch to somebody who's never going to buy in anyway. And when you're consulting with clients, is there... Is there an anecdote from your days with the FBI that, that you like to give that sort of demonstrates the power of negotiation, but in in the kidnapping or, or hostage context? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's quite a few. That's why we wrote the book. <laughs> you know, but it was funny how many hostage scenarios mirrored real-world negotiations. And we had two different hostage takers of completely different 
circumstance, do exactly what uh, a really smart CEO would do. At a bank robbery of hostages in Brooklyn uh, that I negotiated with uh, early in my career, and then a kidnapping in the Philippines, both the bank robber of hostages and a kidnapper, he kept, they both separately, two different, two different cats. I mean, completely different human beings in completely different circumstances. You know, they, they just kept talking about everybody that was with them was more dangerous. The bank robber in Brooklyn said, you know, I'm scared of these guys. I mean, these other guys, they're dangerous. They're the ones that are the threats. You know, I'm the nice guy, but they're the ones you got to watch out for. And I, I don't have any influence over these guys. I don't know what they're going to do. Hmm. Well, this guy was in charge of those bank robbers. And the kidnapper in the Philippines kept saying, like, you know, there's a bunch of people with me. You know, these guys are out. These guys are dangerous. He was actually, he, the kidnapper in the Philippines, not only was in charge, but he was by himself. Now, a great CEO, if he comes to the table, is always going to say, my board is so unreasonable. I, you know, I got so many people on my side. I can't do anything. My board handcuffs me so much. It's, uh, I had one business negotiator say, blaming people that are not in the room. The guy at the table who will not take responsibility for anything because of all the outside influences is hiding his or her influence. Huh. That's a smart move. You get somebody at the table that, that is there as a spokesman that just talks about how in, in, ineffective he is within his organization. You're talking to a smart cookie because that person does not want to get back into the table back into a corner at the table and you've got a strong influencer sitting in front of you and, you, and your response is not, aha, but your response is to know that you're talking to a really influential person and if you can, whatever information you can get out of that is probably going to be really good. And through your hostage negotiating work, I have to imagine that stress played a role. Someone panics or does something rash out of fear in the moment. And an M&A transaction obviously pales in comparison to that, but it's still high stakes in its own right. So I was curious, what yeah. role does stress play in business negotiation and, and how can it be managed? When you're over-focused on the outcome, you're being taken hostage because of your fear of losing the deal. So if you're feeling stress, you're, you're not focused on the moment you're focused on the outcome, you're actually missing massive amounts of information in the moment. I mean, I, I, somebody used an analogy once of me of a tightrope walker. Somebody walk, walking a tightrope, if they look to the other end to where they're going, they're going to fall right off the rope. They're, gonna, they're not going to be able to stay focused in the moment. The minute they're focused in the moment and they forget about the, the destination, they perform in the moment. Hmm. So as, a, as a negotiator, as soon as you're interested in what's the moment I'm in now, what's the process I'm using now, how am I navigating this moment now, and forget about the outcome, then you're, all of your focus is in the moment. It's actually what Stephen Kotler talks about in his book, The Rise of Superman. Your flow, you're in the moment. It's what athletes used to call being in the zone, and that's when you perform at your highest level. 
And speaking of a stressful moment, I wanted to ask you about a video that you showed the audience when you spoke this fall at ACG Philadelphia's M&A <laughs> East conference. So I understand that... That's not fair. <laughs> I understand That's this video... <laughs> we're going there, Chris. I understand that the video was taped while you were being interviewed on CNN by Anderson Cooper. Is that right? Uh, that is correct. Yes, <laughs> and that yes, you had a bit of a bit of a hair challenge? <laughs> I had a bad hair moment. <laughs> well, I was on Anderson Cooper CNN the first time and I and it was it distressed me. I distress <laughs> took me hostage. <laughs> yeah, but in all seriousness, was curious about, you know, how you kept your cool in that moment. I mean, it's it's petty in a sense compared to the other things that we're talking about. On the other hand, you know, I imagine myself being there and my hair all over the place. I'd be stressed out. How did you how did you stay cool? Well, you know, I think I was, you know, I was lucky when I learned hostage negotiation. Uh, the guy that really taught me the most about hostage negotiation, my former boss Gary Nestor. And he's, he's, got a, he's got a book out there called Stalling for Time, which is a great book about his career. But Gary used to always tell us, you know, we don't guarantee success, we guarantee the best chance of success. And buried in that is the recognition that you'll make mistakes, that you're not striving for perfection. So if you make a mistake in the moment, but you're still sticking to your game plan, it's going to be all right. Uh, don't don't handicap yourself by requiring mistake-free performance. And you know, at, at the moment that I was on Amos Cooper, it was like I. So you know, my hair is all over the place. <laughs> if, you know, if I dial in and answer the question, uh, they won't get mad at me and they won't ban me. And as it turned out, they did not ban me over my hair. <laughs> Have you been back since? I, you know, I I, I I've been. I was back on CNN and with Anderson. Had the privilege of being with Anderson Cooper a number of times. You know, a few times with Wolf Blitzer. I I always love CNN. Uh, um, I just me they sort of define twenty four hour journalism. Can we tell people about the Black Swan Group's negotiation newsletter? Absolutely, yeah. It's called the Edge. It's free. It comes out every Tuesday morning. It's short and sweet, and it's a, it's a great supplement to your negotiation level building. Oh, perfect. And we'll include more information when we post the, the podcast as well. So folks can find more details there too. Chris, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Uh, you know, it was absolutely my pleasure the time flew by. Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts or Google Play, where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help other listeners find out about us. If you have an idea for a guest or a topic that you'd like to hear on the podcast, we'd love to hear your suggestions. Please email them to editor at acg.org. I'd also encourage you to check out our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more content covering the middle market, private capital investment, and trends in middle market M&A.